Today I want to take us into a passage in the sacred writ of God's holy word in the book, or rather the letter of 1 Corinthians. So we are going to be in 1 Corinthians and then we will be moving into the book of Acts. In fact, in today's study we will turn to Acts after we look at some things in 1 Corinthians. And we will do more when we get in the book of Acts than looking at a particular passage as we will in 1 Corinthians. In fact, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to survey the entire book of Acts. So that said, on your outline, uh, you'll see some points there that will help you to follow along when we survey the book of Acts because we're going to be moving really quickly through the entire book. So if you've ever wondered what that book is about, I'm going to show you some, some key features in the book of Acts this morning. But before we get there, I want to take you into the book of 1 Corinthians. So please turn there. In today's message, I want to emphasize to you today something that is both timely and biblical about the DNA of Christ's church, specifically about its goings and its growth. That said, the title of my sermon this morning is Let's Go, Lord Grow. We're going to be talking about the goings and the growth of Christ's church. As we get into our study today, the, the title, Let's Go, Let Lord Grow, it'll make sense. It's a really simple title that draws home the point of the text that we will study in 1 Corinthians and what we will see as we survey the book of Acts, and hopefully what will take place as the Spirit of the living God animates the text and applies the message today to our lives and uh, uh, specifically to us corporately as a church in the city of Los Angeles. So while you're turning to 1 Corinthians, or if you've already gotten there, would you find your way to the third chapter and let me offer some, some thoughts by way of introduction for today's message. By way of introduction, I have two points on your outline that are hopefully obvious to all. The first point is this, healthy things grow. Healthy things grow. In our family, every January, we measure the height of our kids. Uh, we moved a lot in the course of our marriage and in the course of having kids. As you know, Los Angeles is an expensive place to live, so we were just bouncing around from duplex to apartment and whatnot, uh, trying to scrape together what we could afford over the years. So a lot of people, they'll have, you know, over here you've got a little doorway, and you might, you might have some notches in the doorway of how tall your kids are or whatever, and that's always cool to see the little notches. But we moved so much that it didn't make sense to notch everything in, so early on we got a piece of wood uh, that we could just carry with us house to house. So we have this piece of wood that's, you know, maybe nine feet or whatever in case we have some Nephilim that come and, uh, and we just notch in every year. So we get the kids to stand up every January and we have them stand against it. And, it, you know, it's, it's fun. You know, the kids kind of gather around to see who grew the most and calculate and whatever. And uh, we haven't gotten it done this year. We actually haven't carved our pumpkins from 2021. Those are still in the garage. They haven't molded, so uh, we'll, we'll see. Maybe we'll do Valentine's pumpkins, but we're a little behind. Uh, you know, tis, tis the nature of things. But every January, we pull out this piece of wood, and we notch in the little marks of the kids, and we see how they grow. And, you know, they, they grow so fast. I was, I was thumbing through social media. Social media has a way of saying, you know, this, this time, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, Put my daughter on blast. I didn't ask her permission, but here you are. This is uh, my, my little TT when she was a little baby newborn. Here she is. She's growing. And here she is most recently. This year, she's going to become our third teenager. I have two boys who are teenagers, and now we'll have our first uh, girl in the house who's a teenager. 
And then we've got four behind that. But I blink my eyes and I go, my goodness, like when did, when did this happen? She's growing so fast. My kids are growing so fast. We put the little notches on the thing every January. They're growing so fast. Now what would happen if, I don't know, say tonight we pull the, the wood thing out and we go to notch and they haven't grown. None of the kids have grown. You know, what would we, what would we think as parents? You know, none of the kids have grown. What is going, we think, what's going on? Because they're at the age where they're supposed to be growing. Their kids are supposed to be growing. Like, what's going on? They're not growing? What's going on? You might take them to the doctor. You know, and the doctor measures their heads and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, Joneses have big heads, so they, they should be growing. You know, what, what is going on? You know, you, your head hasn't grown. You haven't grown in height. You know, what's going on? They would think that something is wrong with you if you're not growing. Because, first point on the outline, healthy things grow. Right? If, if, if you were in the store and you saw a little cute baby, and you're, oh, this is a cute baby. How old is your baby? A little baby. And they're, oh, he's five. <laughs> you go, what? You know, what is five? That, five months? No, five years. You know, no, 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 a five year old should be like, here, what are you talking about? Like something wouldn't be right because healthy things grow. Now, I bring this before you as an illustration because it introduces the text that we have in front of us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In Scripture, the Apostle Paul likened the church to a human body. Just as a human body grows when it's healthy, so too the church is a body that should grow. Um, it, it should grow. It's a part of the DNA of the church to grow. It's a part of the genetic code of the church to grow. It, it flows from the DNA of the Gospel, which by the power of the Spirit is growing to the ends of the earth. That leads us to the first introductory point. Healthy things grow. Secondly, the Gospel grows. Jesus, and my daughter's like, oh gosh, my face isn't on the PowerPoint anymore. Thank you, Dad. Brought the, the message that is brought by Jesus, it, it's a growing message. It's a powerful message. It's an animated message. It's a living message. The Gospel is a message that, that was meant to grow because it's alive and living things grow. It was meant to spread like wildfire. The message grew from Christ to the apostles and from the apostles to the church that they established, and it continues to grow today. In fact, nothing can stop its growth. Nothing can retard or stunt its growth. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus promised that He would build His church and that the gates of hell would not overpower His church. The church would be triumphant by His promise and by His power. The Gospel will grow. A moment ago, I said that this message is, is biblical and it's timely. Being reminded of the Gospel growing is a timely message for us as a church as our, our numbers have diminished over the course of the pandemic. And that can be discouraging. And that can be discouraging. Before the pandemic hit, we had two services. We had a building fund. Pandemic hits. Things start to shift. And that can be a little discouraging, especially for those who are volunteering, for those who are laboring, for those who are praying, for those who are giving and sacrificing for the mission. The message of God's sovereignty and the work of growth, divine growth, is encouraging in times like this. As well, pastorally, I know many of you are suffering friendships and family dynamics over the course of the pandemic that have impacted peace and numbers in your family gatherings and your social get-togethers with your friends. The message of God's powerful grace is encouraging to our homes and our relationships that are going through this season of pandemic that continues. And really, it's not the pandemic that has done this. As much as it is the politics of it all, and the sinfulness of our own hearts that has divided people. 
uh, not just in the world, but even churches and, and individual believers. The divides and the tensions, of course, are exasperated in a place like uh, our city, Los Angeles, or in a place like our state, California, that is a, a very complex state that is made up of many different people with lots of different ideas. And so it, it's easy in some states where things are more monolithic, but in a state like ours, uh, in a culture like ours in Los Angeles and Southern California, things get more difficult. In California, the politics have pulled many away. On a secular note, I totally get it. California is a hard place to live. Los Angeles is a hard place to live. It's expensive, it's violent, it's morally dark. Politicians hoard and ruin the resources of the state and the city. They squander resources like businesses, entrepreneurship, free markets. They ruin schools, our courts are a mess, jurisprudence, law enforcement. Even our natural resources that we have are, are corrupted. There's so much corruption and hypocrisy. It is no wonder that non-Christians and anti-Christians, uh, pop icons in our American culture who are Californians, are leaving the place. I think of Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, Dave Rubin, Elon Musk, and on and on and on. They leave the state. They, they become evangelists for why you should leave the state, and they convince these non-believers manage to actually convince and shape the culture of the believing church as well. Leave for greener pastures, where things will align with your political views, uh, where you can provide a more comfortable way of life, a more stable way of life. You know, escape, get out, you know, utopia, suburbia awaits. And so for Christians, our, our hope, of course, you know, in these times, uh, in particular, if you care about your local church and you see the impacts of this, as I get with pastors around the city, gospel preaching pastors, everyone's sort of feeling this and feeling the discouragement. And I thought, you know what, isn't this a word that we need to hear from the Lord? That, that He grows His church and He's faithful to grow His church. And that in the face of, of forces that would try to pull you away from this, you would hear Christ's call from His word this morning to encourage you, church, Delray Church, be faithful, continue on, point people to the northward star, continue to uplift Christ in this place. For us, our hope is not that the grass is greener on the other side. Our, our hope is in the grass being greener on the other side of the, of the earth, in the return of Christ, His kingdom to come, His new heavens and His new earth. That's where it is greener, and indeed it is imperishably so greener. The grass of the new heavens and the new earth that is to come will never fade. The resurrected will never fade. The glories of our new bodies and the heavens and earth that is to come will never be compromised. We started the new year focusing on these new things of new birth and new bodies and new covenant and new creation and new heavens and new earth. Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that, that this expression yet once more denotes the removing of the things which can be shaken. They're created things. So that the things which cannot be shaken shall remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, I don't know about you, but this is an encouragement to me. To read of His power, He's, he's described as a consuming fire. To read that He is in control. To read that He is a kingdom that is not to be shaken. To hear His Word, a Word that is for us, Delray Church, a, a Word that is a call for us to come in the words of Scripture, in awe and reverence, with gratitude and hope that we are living for a kingdom that is to come, that will not be shaken, and that every sacrifice that we make in this life is worth it. This life is temporary and fleeting. It's fading. It's short. 
And we teach our kids, we've got to be careful with this, those of you who are parents, and even if you're not parents, you get around young kids, and often older people have a way of, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And, and, and we don't cast a vision, particularly as, as believers, that it's, it's not about what you want to be, it's not about what you want to grow up and do. We are living for something that is bigger than all of this. For any title that the earth can give, for any job that you can ever acquire, for any accolade that, that you could ever assume, any of it, all of it, all of it is going to fall on the way up or burn on the way down. We are living for a kingdom that is yet to come. We are to be focused on something else. This life is, 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 is to be sure to be enjoyed in the moment to give thanks to God and His common graces and all, all the rest. We're, we don't want to you know, uh, sort of live for heaven and forsake the earth or something like this. May it never be. But we're living in the earth in such a way to reap a harvest for what is to come. I think of it a lot like, like high school. We've got some high schoolers up here in the front row. Shout out Rushes and Joneses. But, you know, when you're in high school, man, that four years feels like forever, doesn't it? You're like, four years. <laughs> you know, what year are you? Sophomore, junior, senior. It just feels like forever. And what you, what you do, though, in those four years has a way of setting you up for college. And your parents are going to tell you, and they're going to be on you about your grades. You know, man, you can't get grades like that. It's going to mess you up later. Trust me, it's going to mess you up. You got to get good grades. It's going to it's going to set you up for the next thing. You know, see this class is going to set you up. Algebra one is going to set you up for algebra true, and this is going to set you up for that, and that's going to set you up for your transcripts, and that's going to set you up for college, for undergraduate school, and and then your grades in undergraduate school. That's going to set you up for grad school, and that's going to set you up for internships, and and people are going to look at these things. And maybe you're not college bound, but you're career bound, and, and your parents are on you. They're going to say, look, this is going to set you up. You see, what you do in those years of high school, you need to spend wisely. You need, you, you need to focus because it's going to pay off in those next steps. And so too, we might look at it as we're all sort of in high school in this way. And what we are doing right now in these little years, those of you who are older, you're like, four years, that's nothing. My goodness, you know, I've had heartburn for four years. That, that, you know, that's, that's nothing, you know. Are you kidding me? That's nothing, right? But when, when you're young, you feel like, oh my gosh, it's just forever. And so too, against the backdrop of everlasting life. Right? That has no end on it. It's just going like this. All this is going to feel like a blip. So just tell yourself, I'm, I'm just in high school. I'm just passing through. I'm just in high school. And so what I do in these years really needs to be focused. And I, I need to focus on what is before me. I need to sacrifice. I need to worship. I need to serve. I, I, I need to make the Lord known. I need to be a part of this mission of making disciples. Um, more than college or career metaphors or, or sacrifice now so that you can get the next step, we need to remind ourselves that this isn't about a next step or, or, or some sort of success or you know, getting to heaven. or what. This is about Jesus, who is worthy to be praised here and now in the earth and in the earth that is to come. Now, all of that said, as we enter in the text of 1 Corinthians, we're picking up a letter that was written to a church in a very divided culture a church who was facing divides in the culture and those divides that had come into the church. A church that was no stranger to pandemics, a church that was no stranger to politics, a church that was, that, that was very much like our own. In fact, moderns often compare 1 Corinthians, uh, they'll even jokingly call it 1 Californians and 2 Californians, uh, based on the parallels of the culture. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, 5 verse 1, 7 verse 1, we have these little hints inside of the text that uh, from, the from the receiving audience of the letter, they had written to the Apostle Paul, who's the author of this text in the first century, and they've been telling him about, look, the divides of the culture has crept into the church. 
There's all kinds of divisiveness and dysfunction and suffering that's going on in the life of the church. And those people were left and they're looking at empty seats and they're thinking about, you know, hurts that were caused by different people and they're discouraged and they're confused. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to, to offer them hope and clarity, instruction, correction. Uh, the Apostle Paul was used by God to grow the gospel in the ancient city of Corinth during what is known as his second missionary journey, which you can read about in the book of Acts. And on the slide in front of you, you can see the correspondence of his three missionary journeys. Uh, Corinth was a very rough place. It, it is a very rough place. It's a lot like our context. It's a bustling city, a city that brought in different cultures. Of course, you have uh, corrupt powers of Rome that are over the place. And so you have corrupt powers oppressing people. You have classism. You have clashes with ethnic groups. You have all, all sorts of conflicts, things that we're very familiar with. Disease and darkness and dysfunction. And those things were creeping into the life of the church. 1 Corinthians is, in fact, a, a difficult letter in the sense of trying to summarize it. If you said, you know, what is 1 John about? That's, that's pretty easy to summarize. What is... Uh, Mark, the Gospel of Mark about. That's pretty easy to summarize. But he said, what is 1 Corinthians about? It's, there's just so many things going on in 1 Corinthians because there were so many problems going on in the culture that had crept into the church. 1 Corinthians dates to the 50s in the first century. The Apostle Paul, uh, as I've already noted here, started this church on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts 16 through 18. The letter is loaded with teachings that the Apostle Paul gives to the church. His major teaching throughout the letter is to get Christians in the church to have unity and to work together in the gospel, and to be focused on sacrificing for the city, and sacrificing for sake of mission, and sacrificing because Christ is worthy of this. And even further, to purify themselves from the ways in which the culture, and the politics, and the sin, and all of that had soiled them. They were walking in hypocrisy. The baggage of the world had been brought into the church. The people were divided. They were divided by sin, indifference, pettiness. It was not the church that Paul had started. The church was drifting. It was unhealthy. It, you know, it, it wasn't growing in the graces of God and Christ. And so it was a time to take the church to the doctor to say, what's going on? This thing's not growing. What's going on? And so in taking the church to the doctor, the good doctor, the Apostle Paul, is the physician who writes the prescription for the ailments of a divided and discouraged church in 1 Corinthians. Of the many issues that were dividing them were uh, pop cultural personalities. And and those pop cultural personalities began to create kind of a celebrity culture that then was infecting the church, wherein they were lifting up church leaders as these kind of pop icons. Some of the people in the church were discipled by the Apostle Paul. Others were uh, discipled by a, a particular dude named Apollos, who was a homie of Paul. And so Apollos and Paul become these kind of celebrities in this celebrity culture of Corinth. And the Apostle Paul hears about it, and he goes, man, this is a bunch of nonsense. What are you guys doing? Knock it off. We're, you know, we, we, apostles aren't like rock stars or anything like that. We're servants. We're slaves. We're, we're, all the metaphors for you know, leaders in the church are these kind of lowly metaphors. Like, we've come to draw attention to Christ. He, he is our celebrity. Knock off this celebrity culture stuff. People will run around talking about when you read the opening of the letter, I am of Apollos. I am of Paul, you know, making a big deal over who they were following and what they were listening to. Aren't we glad this doesn't continue today? It still continues today. There's not a week that doesn't pass where, you know, so-and-so says, and so-and-so says, and oh my gosh, so-and-so says. The secular news, or quote-unquote news, that's all, it's like all they do. 
You know, so-and-so said this, and a little clip, you know, often out of context. So-and-so says this. So that's what the secular world does. It's crept into the church. A week doesn't pass where I don't get sent a clip. Did you hear what Pastor so-and-so said? Did you read so-and-so's new book? Did you see, you know, dudes are going nuts on Twitter? You know, did you see Twitter, and so-and-so said this, and so-and-so said this, and I am of this pastor, I'm of that pastor, I'm of this guy, I'm of that guy, I'm of this broadcast network, I'm of this broadcast network and what do you think about it and you answer it wrongly and of course you're going to get canceled now with all of this in mind right come to first corinthians chapter three draw your eyes at the text in verse five. First corinthians chapter three draw your eyes at verse five what then is apollos what then is paul right? they're dividing over these personalities servants of whom you believe they're just servants slaves what are you what are you doing even as the Lord gave opportunity to each, I planted, Paul said, Apollos watered. We're working together. Why are you guys, what are you making a big deal out of this? I was throwing some plants, you know, some seeds in the ground. He's watering. But God, verse 6, is the one who causes the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So Paul settles this cancel culture, we might say, this division. And he says, hey, we're nobodies. What are you guys doing? We didn't do anything. You know, healthy things grow. But look, I can't take credit for it. If, if my, my kid's hair is growing, and mine obviously isn't, I can't be like, yeah, that's right, that's right, I did that. I'm not causing their hair to grow. I'm not causing their bodies to grow. God's the one who makes it grow. Uh, I mean, God makes the body grow. You, you don't have to take credit for it. Unless it's your waistline, I guess you could do that. You know, that's right, I did that, you know. But the Corinthians are, are divided. It's absolutely absurd. And Paul and Apollos, you know, what are you guys doing? We're, we're just servants. God, God causes the growth. He repeats it. And the reason why God is the one uh, who's causing the growth is because the church ultimately grows by God's power. Salvation comes by God's power. If you, are, if you are saved, that, that happened by God's power. And that's kind of a churchy word to be saved, but it, it really isn't a churchy word. If you were drowning at sea and you said, save me, you say, oh, you sound religious right now. No, we know what it means to be saved. It's to be rescued from harm's way. Sinners are in harm's way. A, a punishment that awaits them. I want to be saved from that punishment. I don't, I don't want that punishment. I don't, I, don't, I don't want the penalty for what I have done in the eyes of a holy God. Save me from this. And so salvation can't come by my works because I stand guilty. There's nothing that I can do to merit this. And Jesus reminds us of this in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. If you are a Christian, you have to understand that you are because of what God has done in you. He has drawn you. He's in charge from the beginning to the end. Speaking of, of the beginning, the story of our salvation begins at the beginning. It begins with a God who created the world. A God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. A God who is love. A God who is life, who gives life to creation. A creation that, that responds to His love uh, and rejects it. A creation that responds to His Word and, 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 and suppresses it and goes against it. A, a God who responds to the creation rebelling against Him in grace providing a, a, a way to cover them in their sin, providing a promise that He would ultimately send one who would take the penalty that they deserve and lift it from them. You move from that promise from the very beginning 
of creation as creatures respond to God and you see the chaos that ensues. You read about Noah. You read about the ramifications of sin. On the, heel, on the heels of God saving a remnant in the creation, in the story of Noah, we, we meet the story of Babel, where humanity responds to God's gracious compassion in, in saving a remnant in the creation by building a, a false altar to reach up into the heavens. And what does God do to this altar that becomes known as Babel? God knocks it over. And He does this in love because what they were doing would lead to an end that would be their ultimate destruction. And so God takes it from them. You see a kid running around the house with some scissors, you know, you take it from him. Hey, don't do that. that that's not, you know, you're going to poke your eye out or whatever. Don't do that. You, you take it from him. God takes it from him. He, he, he topples Babel and he scatters humanity out into the earth. This is the, be, the beginnings of the nations of the world as they spread out into the world post-Babel. And then God grabs a nomad, this na- man named Abram, who, who was from nowhere, who deserves nothing from God. And God says, I'm going to make you the vehicle through which I will bring the redemption through all those who I have scattered into the nations after Babel. And he sends Abram. And Abram goes. And Abram comes to a land of promise where Abram's descendants become the people of Israel. And, and God sends prophets to Israel and says, I'm going to use you to mediate the salvation of, of, of a people from all the nations of the world through whom I will restore the world itself. God sends prophets. Sends his law, he sends commands. And again, just like the beginning of the story, unrequited love, there's rejection. But God continues to pour out himself in mercy and grace. And ultimately, God pours himself out in the sending of the Son. You see the God who I said is Father, Son, and Spirit. The Father sends the Son. Three persons in the one God. And so this Son comes and he is born, whom we celebrate at Christmas. He takes on a full human nature. He's fully God, for there are three persons in the one God, and so as the second person, the Son, He's fully God, but He becomes a man, and He takes on humanity so that He can give His human life in the place of our human life, our guilt and shame that we have done in our human lives for His innocence and His perfection and His holiness that He did in His human life, and He offers those in exchange. He says, I'll pay the debt for you. The debt that you owed that you could not pay, I'll pay it for you even though he did not owe it. And so as man, he can die in our place. As God, he can offer forgiveness for us. Behold the God-man who has come. Behold the creator of the heavens and the earth who uniquely has stepped in to solve, to remedy the rebellion of the earth. And so Christ comes. He offers himself to his people. He's rejected. So he initiates another remnant in the earth that we refer to as the church. And the church then carries this message of the God of of Israel and the promises of Israel that are going to be fulfilled in him in the future. But in the in-between time, in the meantime, we are sent to go and carry that message to the nations that were once scattered at Babel. And we proclaim to the nations that there is a good God who is a God of love. We proclaim to the nations that there's only one true and living God. Indeed, the earth is filled with religions and gods. There are many man-made gods. But the God that men want and the God who is are not the same. Just because there are lots of wrong answers doesn't mean that there is not a right one. And the right one has come and He has declared that in Him there is life. He is the truth. He is the way. He is the life. And we proclaim Him. Not out of arrogance to say that we got God right and everyone else got it wrong further with tears and humility to cry out that God has revealed himself and there is a God who is and there is a God who is and he is calling and you can come to him and you can be reconciled to him 
And so Paul looks to this God and he sees this God and he sees this remnant missionary force called the church that is to be sent out into the world and he sees this community that he loves because he's going around and checking on these churches and he sees the growth is gone and he sees the discouragement, he sees the despair and he reminds them, look, God's the one who's causing the growth and that growth isn't for our sake, it's for the mission's sake, it's for reaching the nations. Look at the passage. Paul calls himself a servant. Look at the passage. He refers to himself as workers. We've been saved for this work that we're doing in the story of redemption in the earth. We're workers of this. Verse 9. You see that in verse 9? We are workers. In fact, he says we are God's fellow workers, picturing God as co-laboring with the church. Imagine that. Imagine that. God co-laboring with the church. Imagine, imagine that, how incredible that is, the, the, that, that God is laboring with us. He's our, our co-laborer. We get to work with Him. You know, every job has, uh, you know, mo- well, most jobs have co-workers. I don't know if you're just all by yourself. You know, there's some contractors or, wh- or whatever, they work by themselves or whatever, but most jobs have uh, people you work with, co-workers. You ever have a job with co-workers who don't want to be there? How does that feel going into work each day with people who don't want to be there? Uh, never, you know, don't place yourself in the position of a boss, but just as a fellow coworker, people who don't want to be there. It affects you, doesn't it? Uh, for, for kids who are in the room, maybe you haven't had a job yet, but you've had jobs around the home where maybe one of your parents says, hey, you two clean this room. And how does it feel when one of them isn't cleaning? When your sibling is just, and you're doing all the work, right? It's discouraging. It affects you. You ever work with someone who's a complainer? You ever work with someone who's lazy? You ever work with someone who doesn't pull their weight? What happens? It's discouraging. What else happens? It spreads and you become just like that. You take that on and you're sitting on your hands and twiddling your thumbs and whatever and you don't like the company and you don't like your job and you know, alas, it's the DMV, right? (laughs) It's the DMV. Uh, It's uh, it's the post office. I'm, I'm working out my stuff here because we were trying to get some passports and man, we scheduled this thing in weeks and you know, all, all, it's such a big thing and you get there and they're like, oh yeah, sorry, the person isn't here. They're off today. And you're like, are you kidding me? When's the next available appointment? Next month. Are you kidding me? This is a well-oiled machine, isn't it? Yeah. But that's what happens when you're in a climate of people who don't want to be there. Now think of this climate. Who are we working with? We're working with God Almighty. We're God's fellow workers. God has ordained in the doctrine of concurrence, which we've talked about in this church often, to use us for His mission. To use us as a part of reaching those nations that scattered at Babel. To use us to to go. And and this mission, this scattering, is is likened here in this passage to a field. Look at your eyes at the text at at verses 6 through 8. Paul's using horticultural imagery. He uses the image of a field or a farm. God is a farmer who works the field. He's working the soil. God is the, is the green thumb. And just like a garden, you expect things to grow. You put the seed in, you, you expect things to grow. Just like a body, you expect things to grow. Paul compares the church to a body. He compares the church to a field. In fact, as I was thumbing through pictures, now I've got to embarrass my eldest son who's in the room this morning. I found a picture of him when he was a little boy working in a, a little garden that we had at one of our places, picking out the carrots. Look at those chubby little cheeks, little Micah, there he is. But, you know, you expect it to grow. 
You expect those carrots to grow. You expect that little kid, look, he doesn't look like this anymore. You know, he's 15. He doesn't look like that anymore. If he looked like that and he was 15, something would be wrong, right? It, those carrots, they grow. Stuff grows. And using this imagery here, we understand that we as his workers are called to prepare the soil, to prepare the seed, to pull the weeds, to get out there and do that work, to compost and so on and so forth. There's something then for all of us to do in this room. There's something for everyone who is reading this letter in Corinth to do. Paul speaks of his work. He speaks of Apollos' work. Paul's point was that we're all sharing in this work. So who cares who prepares the soil or who pulls the weeds or who planted the seeds or who watered or who sifted the compost? Who cares? Why would you make a big stink about that? Why would you divide like that? It absolutely doesn't matter. What matters is the harvest. When we get those carrots, when we make a meal with them, and so too what matters, Delray Church, is our harvest in our context. We have a harvest before us, and God has promised in His Word to cause growth in the Gospel for His glory. As we saw earlier, Jesus said that even the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And it's worth noting that the gates in the ancient world are used for defensive purposes. In the same way that we use gates today. You put them on the front of your house to keep people out. And so hence, the imagery here is of the church triumphant storming the gates of hell growing over the kingdom of darkness. This is the opening point for us. This is the driving application for us. Healthy things grow. And as we see in this ancient letter, it is a matter of fact because we are God's field. We're the body of Christ, a growing and animated and living thing that carries a, a living message, the gospel. Delray Church is God's field, brothers and sisters. We are Christ's body. And this field has been here in this community for over 60 years. There, there have been six decades of spiritual farming and tilling the soils of West Los Angeles with the gospel of Jesus Christ through the saints who have, who have served at Delray Church. And in this time, this church has seen a lot of farmhands and field workers come and go. And uh, in the last 30 plus years that I have been here, I have witnessed so much, and I'm so thankful to God for the good and the bad that I have witnessed. In over 20 years of working on staff here as a, as a pastor, so much sweat and blood has been poured into this body and into this field. I've had the honor of, of marrying and burying some amazing saints who have, who have farmed this field faithfully. I've had the joy of discipling uh, many of you in this room and those of you watching on, online. I've had, I've had the joy of discipling those who have moved on and we teared up as they moved out of the city and the state. I love this field. And, but if I were a Christian, I wouldn't. It's a, a work of God that calls us to see our space in a way that is sanctified and fills us with joy that we might co-labor with God as His workers in such a place. As we continue this work and we seek to raise up uh, more disciples to, to, to go into and reach the people who have been yet, yet to be reached with the Gospel, as well to send people out of this place to go into the world where there are communities that have yet to ever hear the name of Jesus or God's Word in their language. That, that's the goal, to, to go where we are planted and grow where we are planted and send where the Word has yet to go. I pray that we will all be encouraged that God is at work and we'll be challenged as we see His call on our lives to grow and to go. And thinking of what God deserves and also what God commands, we can feel... Uh, really, we should feel that we all fall short. Uh, we, we ought to feel that we fall short when a pastor is up here talking about go and grow. Um, we don't experience the growth that we ought to in our individual lives or in our church's life. 
Uh, we give more money to other things. We give more time to other things. We spend more time on YouTube and Netflix and whatnot than sharing the good news. Uh, we spend more time uh, reading, reading blogs than we do reading God's Word. We spend more time doing other things. We don't open up our homes to reach the lost in acts of hospitality. We, we don't open up in acts of charity for purposes of gospel witness. We don't engage in God's common grace and in issues of, of, of things going on in the city for issues of justice or issues of, of things that are just absolutely dark and standing against them. We're so easily distracted. And so in hearing a message like, like, let's go, let's do this, let's grow, I hope there's also a sense of, man, I haven't been doing it. I haven't been growing. You hear a message, we need to pray. Man, I haven't been praying. I haven't. You hear a message about good parenting. Man, I'm not a good... I, I don't do those things. You hear a message about, you know, being a better spouse. Ah, yeah, you know, yeah. You hear a message about being single and being holy. Ah, you know, yeah, I haven't. You hear the commands of God's law is what I'm getting at. Hear this message, go and grow. And at the beginning of this, in the middle of this, wherever, whatever point in this we are, say to yourselves, I don't do that. So that you can feel the weight of that and then hear the message of the gospel. The perfect churchman, Jesus Christ. The perfect evangelist. The one who never wasted. Never sinfully wasted his time. Never was preoccupied with the things of the world. Was never soiled by the world. Was never sinfully divided. Was never sinfully consumed by the politics of his day. You would never find him, you know, just enamored with Herod or Pilate and what so-and-so was saying about such-and-such and and so distracted and so emotional and so involved in something other than his sheep. He is the shepherd who will leave the 99 and go and get the one and bring the one back. He is so focused on his church. And, And understand that as the shepherd... He entered into the story, as I, as I already described and proclaimed to you, as a sheep. He came and He lived the life that we didn't. So as you hear the message, you go, I need to witness more. I need to give more. I need to sacrifice more. I need to be a peacemaker more. I need, I need to turn the other cheek more. I need to be involved in this, in this thing more. It's a time to come to God in your hearts, even now as you're listening, and just cry out to Him and say, I'm sorry. What you've done for me, I've made a mess for it. I haven't, I haven't done this right. And then to hear the gospel, the one who has done it perfectly. We need to hear this. We need to hear of Jesus who has done it all for us. We need to hear of the one who offers us his love and his mercy so that we are not stuck in a hamster wheel of guilt and shame going, oh, I'm never going to... No, 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 no. He loves you. He forgives you. He invites you. We need to hear this, church. The world needs to hear this. The law hangs over the world. And the law points us to our need of the Savior. This is why we preach law and gospel in the church. Now then, all of that said, we see from the very beginning this idea that healthy things grow, that the gospel grows, that the church was called to this growth. Now let's turn to the book of Acts. And I'm going to survey the book of Acts. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a prescriptive text. It's telling you what should be. Acts is a descriptive text of telling you what occurred. The book of Acts follows the gospels, which are the narrative accounts of the highlights of Jesus's uh, life specifically, his, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection in the gospel accounts. And then Acts follows that to tell you what takes place after his resurrection and his ascension. And throughout these narratives, we are going to see descriptions of growth and God's heart for growth, which leads us to the second point on the outline. We move from the introduction to gospel growth in scripture and history 
Now let's move fast. Jesus begins his ministry with a small group, 12 to be exact. Uh, and Jesus commissions those 12 to go out into the world. Uh, this is the first sub-point on your outline here. Jesus commissioned it. He commissioned a community to go. Matthew chapter 28, uh, what we refer to commonly as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20, and also in Acts 1. Let me put them in front of you just as we get into the book of Acts so you can see what sets up the book of Acts. Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Again, going back to salvation history, God creating the world, the world uh, creatures turning against the Creator and sin, and God offering them mercy and, and promise, and, 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 and humanity responding with chaos. We see Noah, we see Babel, we see the nations scattered, and we see God gathering a nomad, Abram, and taking him to go to the nations. We see the Messiah coming to the, to, the, to the people of Abram. We see the rejection of that. And then the Messiah raising up this church to go to the nations. And now, now he commissions them. Before he ascends, before he goes, he says, go to the nations. It's to be a reverse of Babel. You're going to go into the nations. You're going to bring the people to me. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, again, you see, go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all creation. In Luke 24, verses 46 through 48, Thus it is written that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. In Luke, uh, in, in Luke 24, same thing in John 20, verse 21, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Hence the title, Let's Go. We're a community that has been sent to go, to reach the places where He has placed us. The Gospel writers all have this commission very important, and Acts falls on the heels of this, so Acts is going to show you what it looked like in real life. Here's the command, now let me show you how to do it. You know, go do this. Oh, I don't know how to do that. Let me show you how. God gives the command, and he also gives the example. And the example that he gives is empowered by the Spirit. That's the second sub-point. Jesus commissioned it, the Holy Spirit empowered it. This point is absolutely critical for us to really reflect on. You see, God gives the command for us to go into the creation, that is mission impossible for 12 dudes. And you read about the dudes in the gospel account. One of them stabs Jesus in the back. So, you know, you're down to 11 when this thing gets going off. You're like, these, 12, these 11 dudes are going to go into the whole world? How's that going to work? That is mission impossible. And Tom Cruise ain't on the team. It's not going to happen. How is it going to happen? Well, mission impossible will be made possible by the power of the Spirit. I ask you to turn to the book of Acts. Turn your eyes in the text of the book of Acts to Acts chapter 1 and find your way at verse 1. This is the account I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken into heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Gathering them, verse 4, draw your eyes at verse 4, gathering them together he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for what the Father had promised. What did the Father promise? Verse 5, what does verse 5 say? The Holy Spirit. Again, we worship a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. He's not sending them a force, the force be with you. He's sending them a person, a divine person. So as, as the Son has come, now the Spirit has come, and the Spirit has come to bring the power to fulfill the command to go. Draw your eyes at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. These are Jesus' last words to his disciples. It's his final shout-out. And Luke shows us in the account of Acts that, that this heart for Jesus, that the church would go, the church would grow. He told the disciples not, not to hold down a fort till I get back, not to be ostriches, to put your head in the sand, 
not to build your little bunker underground, not to go red dawn and have a cabin in the woods or whatever. He said, no, no, you're not to build a fort. The church is to be the force that goes out. And He, the Spirit, will be the one who is driving the church to be that, that force in order to assure that there would be this success as they go to the ends of the earth, in order to assure that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, it's in front of you. I'll put it in front of you as well, so you've got it in the Word if you're open to it. And also, in front, you will receive power. At the end of it all, Jesus entrusted the ministry of the, of the apostles to the launching of the church. He foretold the church would be built, the church would be founded by the apostles and fused by the Spirit. This is absolutely amazing to me that he entrusted it to those 11 guys when you read the historical accounts. I, I think of businessmen that I know who are you know, training employees and they're trying to get above the place where they can you know, multiply their business and get employees who could run it and then open another one. And, and you think, like, these are the guys that you would entrust it to. Oh yeah, but he didn't just entrust it to them. He sent the Spirit to make sure that the thing would work. It's absolutely amazing to me to think of what God is doing to think that we are a part of this. Again, what we saw in 1 Corinthians. We're fellow workers in this. We're a part of this house that God is building, the church, that His Spirit indwells. This is the house of the living God, the church. The church is not the building. The church is the people. Delray Church, you're the house of the Spirit of God. And all the churches gathered around the city of Los Angeles and California and the, and the nation and around the world, you're the house of the living God. Think of how amazing that is. Think if, uh, if you were out house hunting and you, know, you were looking at expensive houses and one of the sales point was like, hey, Bruce Willis used to live in here. Like, man, that's my favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard, right? Like, what? what? You know, uh, Clint Eastwood used to live in here or Muhammad Ali lived in here or Walt Disney once owned this home or Rosa Parks owned this home or Martin Luther King Jr. owned this home. Tomorrow we ob observe a day of, of a memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. and, and this nation. Booker T. Washington lived in this home, right? You'd go, wow, that's crazy. This is such a great thing to be in. This home isn't dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You know, let it soak in. Let, let Him soak in even further and feel His power. Now let's look at His power in the book of Acts. We're going to move fast. We're going to move fast. I'm going to outline. You have the outline on your outline. Point number one in Acts chapter 1, chapter 2 through 47, verse 47, you see the establishment of the church. You see the subpoints there, the post-resurrection ministry and ascension of Jesus in the first 11 verses of, of chapter 1. You see the gathering together in Jerusalem. They obey what Jesus commanded, wait in Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. We see the coming of the Holy Spirit, who he sent in chapter 2, verse 1 through 41. And then we see the power of the Spirit in the life of the church, verses 42 through 47. And here we start to see the reverse of Babel, as Babel scattered the people out in sin as they were trying to reach up and find God, now God comes down in the Spirit and goes out to the nations and begins to draw them to Himself. I want you to notice that each of these points on the outline have a summary statement by the author that emphasizes the growth of the church. So here on point one, it ends with chapter 2, verse 47. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 47. And it says, Praising God, having favor with all the people, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what we saw in, in 1 Corinthians. It's the Lord who grows. That's what we see described here in Acts 2.47. The Lord is adding to their numbers. You can see it's a growing church. And as it progresses, that's exactly what we're going to see as we survey the text. The book of Acts will flow out just like what we read in, the, in verse 8. From Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. The church is going to go. The church is going to grow. And keep in mind that they did this by foot. They did it by mouth. They didn't have cars. 
They didn't have the internet like we have today, which, by the way, is very helpful. You know, our church has listeners in, in Israel, in the Middle East, in Europe, in Africa, in Asia. It's, it's absolutely cool when I get out and get to travel, travel the world and meet people who are listening to us online. What an incredible gift that God has given us in His common graces of technology. But the early church did this by foot. Their technology were the harachis and their, you know, and their, their jugular, their voice box. Now, secondly, we move from the establishment of the church in 1 through chapter 2 to the good news that spreads from Jerusalem in chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 7. And again, you see the various subpoints there. I'm not going to read them all of what goes on in that section. But in, again, notice I showed you there's a summary point that ends each of these. So here we saw chapter 2, verse 47. We saw the emphasis in 247 of the Lord adding to their numbers. Now here again, what we're going to see in chapter 6, at the end of it, in verse 7, a summary statement that's very similar. The word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to increase greatly. And a great number were becoming obedient to the faith. They're, they're growing. The land's basically divided, Judea, Galilee, Samaria. Judea is the southernmost Roman division of what today is called Palestine. It extended from the Mediterranean Sea on the west to the Dead Sea on the east. It was about 56 miles from the north to the south, from the east to the west. Galilee occupied the upper part of the land, the northwest province. Samaria is the uplands of uh, central, what we call central Palestine. It stood about 300 feet high in, the, in a wide basin surrounded by mountains on all three sides. Suffice it to say, this is tough terrain to, to go through. And nevertheless, they go. It was hard. They sacrifice. They go. And they go by the power of the Spirit, and God grows. Next point on your outline, point four, we see the good news spreads to Antioch. Antioch was a happening city. Population is bustling. The church grew through major cities. That's how the church grow, grew, and it continues to grow that way. Because the word trickles out. What happens in the city? When the city catches the Rona, uh, everybody else starts to catch the Rona. When, the, when you know, culture is being produced in those you know, city centers around, it starts to spread out. So the good news hits Antioch. And again, here you see a summary statement as, as we get uh, down to the bottom of this. We'll see Acts 9.31 as it spreads to Judea and Samaria. The church goes through and look, what's going on here? The Lord is the one who is causing the increase. And again, we get down here to Antioch as I was talking about this bustling city. You move into Antioch, you see a summary statement. The word of the Lord continued to grow. Things continue to be multiplied. Antioch is a, a major cosmopolitan place. The church is aiming at these cities. It's growing. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria gets out to Antioch. Next point on your outline, the good news spreads to Asia. Asia is basically the old Persian Empire. It's Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul's letters, a lot of them are written to churches in Asia. The seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation in the beginning, those letters that Jesus offers to the churches in Revelation. They're in Asia. And we read here, chapter 16, verse 5, a summary statement. The churches were being strengthened in faith. They're increasing in their number daily. There's a strength that's coming by faith. Faith is the gift of God that no man may boast. This is clearly a work from God. Asia, the gospel's in Asia. The gospel's in Africa. We pass by that in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian. The gospel's spreading into Asia and, and, and Africa. And then it begins to spread into Europe. We move in this next section of the book of Acts in this early history of the church. We see the summary statement, chapter 19, verse 20. The word of the Lord was growing mightily. The word of the Lord is prevailing. And then we move to this section of Rome. This is the final section of the book. As the gospel then reaches out into the Roman Empire, we see a summary statement, chapter 28, verse 31. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. So that's a survey of the book of Acts. 
It's the history of the church. It's, it's a reversing of Babel as God by His grace is drawing the nations to Himself and He's doing so by the power of the Spirit. And, and, and as the book is, is moving, you see these key points moving over these geographic areas that are stressing to us the work of God as He's breaking down ethnic barriers, He's breaking down class barriers, and He's drawing a, a people unto Himself. And, and it's emphasizing the growth of this. Now, many people will minimize numbers, and they'll say, oh, you shouldn't focus on numbers. On the other extreme, you have churches that focus so much on numbers, they're all about numbers and numbers and numbers and how many people you can get in the room. And often those kinds of churches, they'll compromise their doctrine because they know talking about hell and sin, you know, people aren't going to want to come to that. Heck, having long sermons, people aren't going to want to come to that. So let's do a 20-minute TED Talk. We'll keep it really light. We'll sell Jesus tickets to heaven and we'll draw lots of people. And then we'll get some, you know, we'll, we'll get some uh, smoke machines and a light show. We'll have a cool rock concert. It'll be great. Some karaoke on the wall. It'll be awesome. We could draw lots of people. So you have the advent of the megachurch where doctrine is minified, people aren't really growing. There's not even really relationships. Uh, I had the experience of being in a large church and, you know, you'd run into people and go, oh, are you new here? I've been coming here 10 years. It's just so big, you know. There's not relationships. There's, there's not doctrine. On the other hand, smaller churches, you know, you can say, well, you know, we shouldn't focus on numbers. We should just focus on doctrine and relationships. No, numbers are important. Healthy things grow. And you know what? Our Lord deserves to be praised um, among the many. Our Lord has called us to go. And so as you read Acts, you'll see, and I'm going to just shotgun you here. I'm going to, uh, just a bunch of verses where you see this. Acts 2, 2, 41, notice the emphasis on numbers, 3,000 souls. Acts 4, 4, notice the emphasis on numbers, 5,000 souls. Acts 2, 47, the Lord adds to their number those who are being saved. Acts 5, 14, more and more are believing and adding to their number. Acts 4, 3 through 5, many heard the message, believed, the number grew. Acts 5, 14, more and more, you see. Uh, Acts 6, 7, the word spread, the number of disciples increased, a large number, you see that? Acts eleven twenty one. the Lord's hand was with them, a great number believed. Acts eleven twenty five. a great number were brought to the Lord. Acts 14, 1, at Iconium, right, a great number. Acts 14, 21, they preached the good news and won a large number. Acts 17, 4, uh, people are being persuaded, a large number. You see the gospel here in these verses too. It's not just increasing numbers in terms of people attending churches or one particular church. They're filling lots of local churches and, and house churches and discipleship and they're, they're growing. And with that growing, lives are being changed. And with lives being changed, society is changing. There's an emphasis in these verses here in front of, uh, 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 in front of you, like Acts 17.4 here, you see the emphasis on Greeks and prominent people. You see this here, Acts 17, 12. Let me put this in front of you, an emphasis on prominent people. There's poor people, there's prominent people coming to be saved. In Acts uh, 19, 19, here we read that a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. They calculated the value of the scrolls. The total came to 50,000 drachmas. The gospel is spreading and is breaking down structures in the culture. These false religions that were selling goods to people and taking advantage of the naive and the broke and what have you, those are, those are literally burning down. As a result of that, those forces come up against the church. I emphasize this because many will say things like, you know, you preach the gospel and you don't care about issues of justice in society or where people are being victimized or whatever, and our job is just to preach the message. To be sure, our job is to preach the message. But to be sure, we're called to make disciples. And as the message goes out and people hear that message, their lives are changed. And so too, cities change. Structures change. Societies change. 
So we, we've seen here that Jesus commissioned it, the Spirit empowered it. Finally, a, a point here, the church is called to continue it. This is a part of our DNA. The book of Acts ends with a cliffhanger, so as to suggest, look, this story is still going. The book of Acts is still going. You see the broad sweeps of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Antioch, Asia, Europe, North America, Los Angeles, California. There's places in the earth. We've sent missionaries out even recently to go to places in the earth that have yet to hear of him. The Bible, the Bible has called us to go and proclaim this. I hope this fills you with joy to be reminded of your charge to go. I hope this fills you with a sense of urgency. The church is not in a numbers game. We're in a worship game, and the Lord deserves to be worshipped by the masses. Now, the masses will not come to Him. Narrow is the road that will find Him, He has promised. And so we go and we proclaim this message knowing that He has His chosen in the city that await to hear the good news of Him who has to come. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that we ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jews, to the Greeks, to the ends of the earth. Jesus did not blame the darkness. He, he held the light responsible. We saw that in our beginning uh, scripture reading today. If you came on time, you, we read Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus charges the light, look, it's our job to go. So, so we must go. We must expect His growth. We, we must cry out to Him to this end. I emphasize that it's our corporate responsibility because often I find, in particular in North American celebrity culture, we want the celebrity church people to do this. The guys on TV or the guys on the radio, or even in a local church like this, you might think, hey, that's Pastor Tony's job, or that's Pastor Matt's job, or that's those guys' job. No, this is our job. This isn't the job of one person. This is our corporate calling to do in the city of Los Angeles. Keith Phillips, he wrote a book where he charted the numeric difference between one professional pastor or evangelist leading a person a day to Christ, right? Like if you had one like pastor guy or evangelist guy who's leading one person to Jesus every day, what would take place as opposed to having a church, a discipling community that's multiplying? Let me put the stats in front of you. In year one, the evangelist would lead, say, 365 people one day at a time, right? And maybe the discipler leads two to the Lord, but disciples them and teaches them and, and trains them. By year two, the discipler has four. By year three, the discipler has eight. By year eight, the discipler has, has reached 256, while the evangelist has reached 2,920. But notice what takes place as we continue the trend here. When you get down uh, to, to year 10, to year 11, oh my goodness, by year 12, we, we start being neck and neck, and by year 13... What do you see there in year 13 that the discipler has managed to have influence over 8,192 versus the one-on-one the -on -one evangelist who's had 4,745? And by the time you get to year 16, you notice the difference. The evangelist has reached 5,840, but the discipler has reached over 65,000. Now, now, catch the vision. As we invest ourselves and we build small growth and you disciple, over time, that's how the gospel spreads. And, and, and at the end of this, it really reminds you that it's amazing how much we can get done if we don't care who gets the credit for it. That, that's true at work, too, by the way. You could put that on a little plaque at work. It's amazing, it's amazing how much you get done if you don't care who gets the credit for it. We've been called to do this corporately. This is our job. We saw Romans chapter 1 reminding us of the power of the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 10. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? But just as it written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. 
The church is called to be a preaching community. It's not the job of the, of the professional clergy. The clergy's job is actually to equip the saints for the work of the harvest. Paul reminded Timothy, who was not an evangelist, in 2 Timothy 4-5, to do the work of an evangelist. As a new pastor here some 20 years ago, a young pastor just trying to figure things out, I was preaching on these very things. I preach this message all the time. I love preaching on this at the beginning of the year to really set the tempo. And so as a new pastor, I was preaching on some of these basic things to remind the church of it. And I'll never forget, there was a, an old person in the church who had been in the church longer than I had been alive who came up to me after the sermon and said, I've never led anyone to Christ in my life. And again, it was that reality of feeling the weight of this, like we've been commanded to do this. And in my whole life, I've never led anyone to Christ. And to that person, again, I just preached the gospel to say, yes, but but he, he's good, he's faithful, and you still have life. You still are a witness. You're still a part of something that's a witness. So in conclusion, if you say to yourself, I've never let anyone, I haven't done this. Well, guess what? Now's the day to start. Take the message of, of God's Son. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. First John 5. Go and carry that and share with people. It's not our job to save. It's just our job to proclaim. God's the one who saves. God's the one who saves. God's the one who grows. And so just go and, and open up and, and share with people the message. Don't overcomplicate the, the method. The method is just to speak. The power is in the word. There's this saying, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. That's absolutely ridiculous. The message is a message of words. We have to use words to get it out. Now the adage, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words, perhaps is making a point that is worth consideration. It would just be the point that James makes that faith without works is dead. Don't run around talking about, you know, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, and your life looks horrible. Run around talking about Jesus saves and, and work on your life as well. Tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day. We think of the hypocrisy in American churches in, in this nation. We think of, of the great, uh, you know, stain of the sin of racism in this nation. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King said, and I quote, it's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday. That's sad. It's sad that, that the church in that era that would run around and, and preach, right? There's a God who saves and here he is and whatever, had this, this gross sin. Yeah, preach the gospel. It's always necessary to use words and, and get your life right. Throw yourself at the mercy of Christ and say, Lord, work on me so that I'm not a hypocrite when I'm going and proclaiming. But just because you're a hypocrite, don't stop proclaiming. My math teacher was a hypocrite, but two plus two is still four. And I'm glad he taught me that, even though he was a hypocrite. You know what I mean? Truth is truth, so go and proclaim. And again, remember this overarching story that I'm teaching you this morning as we started with creation and creatures rebelling against God and we looked briefly at, at Babel. You'll see on your outline on the back of it this juxtaposition of the, the Tower of Babel versus the Acts Church. Babel was an ancient tower that we read about in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, in the land of Shinar, probably Babylonia. It corresponds to, in general to Babylonian ziggurats, so pyramids that would reach up to God. We're going to reach up to the heavens. We're going to get numbers, and we're going to find God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. It wasn't, as I said a, a moment ago, with it's amazing how much you can get done if no one wants to get credit for it. They wanted credit for it. They wanted to make a name. Genesis 11.4 says, they said, come, let us build a city for ourselves, a tower whose top will reach to the heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. The count moves into the description of sin and the function of it all, and you see God responding in grace and, and sending out the missionary force of Israel, ultimately the Messiah and the, the ministry of the church in this age. 
And here you see the position. It's on your outline. I'll put it in front of you. Of, of, of how God uses that sin to begin to reshape this thing that we're experiencing today. This is uh, the final point on your outline, the kind of mindset that we ought to have. That we're this community that's been called to go out and pull in as opposed to a place that's posted up trying to build numbers and make a name for itself, which far too many folks do in the name of church in a culture uh, of overconsumption and comfort like ours. The final point on your outline, the mindset, is to have this mindset of going and to have this mindset of worship and to have this mindset of sacrifice. What we are doing is investing. You're investing now by listening to this sermon. You're investing now by coming today. You're investing now as you, as you give and as you serve. Jesus said, do not collect treasures where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths nor rust destroys or where thieves can break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You are investing. You think about investing, right? When Amazon came out, I thought about investing when Amazon came out because I like books and they kind of started with books. And I was like, you know, we should invest in this. I didn't. I didn't. When, when Netflix came out, you know, I was like, we should invest in this. I didn't. I was, you know, I like Blockbuster. I'm going to be loyal. You know, I like to look at the cases, you know. Didn't invest. You think of missed opportunities to invest. Think of this opportunity that we have to invest in souls to reap this harvest. Dr. Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he writes uh, this story from a 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells of a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler and play softball and they collect shells. Piper writes, at first when I read this, I thought it might be a joke a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ, Piper writes, on the day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. See my shells, Lord. And then Piper goes on, he says, that is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream over and against it. I put my protest, don't buy it, don't waste your life. That is the dream of, of Babel. That is the American dream. As he moves on in this book, Piper goes on to share a story about two others who lived the Axe dream that I put in front of you today. In April 2000, Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it all out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went off the cliff, and they were both killed instantly. Was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ? Even two decades after most of the American counterpoints had, counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on shells. No, that's not a tragedy. That's glory. These lives were not wasted. Their lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life 
for my sake, Jesus said, for the gospel's sake, finds it. We waste our lives because we don't see the big picture. We, we, we need to forget the shells. We need to forget the American dream. Yeah, you could get a bigger backyard somewhere. You could have a more comfortable life somewhere. But you weren't called and planted in this place for that. You weren't called to live for that. Our kingdom that is to come is unshaken. It will not be lost. Now is the season of investment. Now is the season where we take this cup. Now is the season for us to proclaim to the world not only this, this, this ordinance that we celebrate on a Sunday, but the message that this ordinance brings. The one whose body was broken. The one whose blood was shed. He gave it all for us. He gave it all for us. As a substitution to pay our way, also as an example to show us the way. No man is above his master, he taught his disciples. If this is what I've done with my life, what do you think your life is supposed to be lived for? If he would die for the church, what ought we to do for the church? What ought we to do with our lives? To, to, to give our lives unto what he has provided for us. Let's celebrate him as we eat the bread. And in our hearts confess our sin that we are not worthy of the bread. And in our hearts rejoice in the gospel as we drink the cup, the one who freely poured himself out for us, a cup that never runs empty, a cup that always overflows, just like his goodness and his mercy. Let's drink. I'm going to pray and invite our brother Ian to come forward and lead us in song. We'll close with a couple of songs and and a final prayer before we go. Lord God, I pray that you would move through the ministry of your word this morning, drawing us in repentance and faith this day. Lord, forgive us. We have uh, not lived for mission the way we should. We have not lived, O Father, as as your Son lived uh, to show us the way of life. We have not relied on the precious power of the Spirit that has been sent for us. Far too often we find ourselves saying, Oh, those people will never be saved, or those people will never change, failing to realize that we were those people, and we'd still be those people, but by your Spirit. Lord, we've surveyed uh, the whole book of Acts, and we are challenged by the examples of our brothers and sisters from ages ago, of how they gave, how they lived, how they died as martyrs for the cause of Christ. Lord, may we this day be uh, challenged to live uh, such a life, And Lord, we we thank you for the privilege of being in a place like California and uh, the United States of America where we have so much freedom that we take for granted. Lord, and even the threat of small freedoms being taken from us, we panic so much. Uh, Lord, may may we come this day in in a renewed passion to, to use these freedoms for your glory. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.